The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hey, it's Rebecca Greenfield, the host of The Paycheck. Welcome back to the third installment of our conversation series about women, work, money, and sexism. This week, we bring you our final chat for now. The story of pay for women in law is a familiar one. Female lawyers make a lot less money than the men do. Women only make up about 20% of partners at firms, and among partners, there's a 44% pay gap. All of which makes Michelle Roberts' career remarkable. Michelle grew up in public housing in the Bronx and went on to build a reputation as a skilled trial attorney. In 2014, she became the first woman to head the NBA Players Association. That's the union that represents the players when they negotiate with the NBA. She talks with Emily Bazelon, a lawyer by training who chose a different path. She became a journalist and is also a lecturer at Yale Law School. We're going to pick up the conversation with Michelle talking about her early career. When I decided to become a lawyer, I frankly decided to be a public defender. My background was such that I had grown up with people who, when they did get in trouble, could not afford good lawyers. And so, best job I ever had. I loved it. I did it for eight years. It's a very tough job to do, especially as you begin to represent people that are charged with more serious offenses and and, and the stakes become higher. So, at some point, I frankly just punked out. I couldn't take it anymore. So, I decided to do civil, and that was the transition to, to law firms. Um, initially, it was small firms, and then ultimately I, went, I moved on to law firms. And frankly, the only reason, and it's, it's just true, that I decided to go to big law was I had two nieces who I promised my mom I would help to put through college. So I ended up at Skadden um, doing trial work, but doing it within the context of, uh, of com- corporate and commercial law. I enjoyed law school. I suspect, I suspect you did too, which is why you're still in, in that environment. But there was no way in the world I could consider having gone through that process and not engage immediately in the practice of law. And as I understand your transition um, after law school, you, you, you didn't kind of want to practice, huh? What, what, what happened, honey? Yeah, <laughs> it's even perhaps stranger than that. Or I wonder if you'll think it's stranger. So I graduated from college and worked as a journalist for four years. And I didn't see an obvious way to move into the kind of next job that I wanted. I didn't even know this word at the time, but I wanted to be like a narrative, long-form magazine journalist. So when I went to law school, it was um, a kind of act of not exactly desperation, but like a way of of restarting. I, I wanted to go back to school, but also I was hoping to get a better job in journalism, which was a little bit nutty. 
and um, and not the cheapest way to arrive <laughs> at that destination. But I also was sort of open to the idea of practicing law. And so I thought when I started, like, well, I'll see what I think about this. And it what became clear to me pretty quickly was that while I was really interested in the ideas, I was not really cut out to be a lawyer. I never wanted to stand up in a trial, right? So I think the really thrilling things about being a lawyer were kind of not a great match for my skills. And, and then I got lucky and I ended up getting to do the things in journalism I was hoping to do. In my own work life, the thing that has bothered me the most has been how little I have known about the salaries of the people around me because I've worked for private companies at which that information is not available. And so there have been moments where I've been well, I actually care like probably too much about fairness. <laughs> and so when I That's think a about problem. Right, you it care is too it's, much about fairness. It can be debilitating, right? <laughs> you know, to me, I'm not someone who cares about making a lot of money, but when I think that other people around me are getting paid better, then I get suspicious and um ornery about it. At just about every law firm, the higher earners are men. And women have to ask themselves if that's really because of the reality that they bring in more money. Um, is it really that they are more valuable than 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 we female partners are? Because the disparity is so glaring, you can't you can't not notice it. But for me as a woman, um, because I like you, I mean, I'm not going to pretend I didn't care about what I was making, but I frankly never dreamed that I was going to be making the money I ultimately made, and so therefore thought I was lucky until I saw what some of my male counterparts were making, and I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, now what, what, what's the real differentiator here? And how did you find out? Like, how does that... Because, because the partners are told um, what, what each partner is making. So you, you knew, and you either thought, well, I'm lucky to be here, or you did some, what I did sometimes and said, well, why is he, or why are all those he's making more money than I am? My, the bottom line is I think it's probably, it's uncomfortable, it creates a lot of a lot of friction, and for some people, it creates a lot of self doubt and wonder about value. But I think at the end of the day, there should be transparency about compensation, so people can be satisfied or not satisfied that they're being treated fairly. What I ended up doing was deciding that I couldn't, I didn't have the energy to worry about whether or not I was not being compensated at a level because I was a woman or because I was black or both. What I ultimately decided to do was decide what I thought I was worth and to pick a number that m would make me feel as if I was being valued appropriately. And and I simply would say <laughs> that when comp time came around, this is my number. And how did you arrive at that number? I'm not going to pretend I didn't take into consideration what the men around me were making. So if there were someone in, 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 the, in, the, in the litigation group whose practice was as close to mine as I could at least fathom, and if he was making X, I wanted at least X. To the extent I could, I would try to find comparables. Um, and when I did find comparables, at least in terms of their practice, I insisted that I got at least that number. Now, there would be occasions when I would say, you know, I didn't have that great a year. And so maybe I'm not necessarily going to get the same number that Joe is. But I needed to at least find out what I was comfortable with. And, and, and no matter what Joe is getting, if you get this number, will you stay? If you don't get that number, will you, will you leave? And that's kind of how I did it. I mean, I just, in other words, I decided what my value was, and 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 then that was the number I I, I lived with. How does it work in your world? Um, it's much more mysterious, right? <laughs> so, 
what you just described, there is a frankness that's bracing and perhaps useful. But then I also wonder if it leads some people down the path of like obsessing about money and comparisons all the time. Right. You can. You can. But, but, you know, you could but you can stop by saying I mean, I think I think it's, it's silly not to be aware of what other people are being compensated. But you need to stop at some point and say, look, that aside, do I want to stay here? And what's the number that will keep me here? And you kind of do that by not being necessarily guided by the comparables, but you know, cognizant of the comparables, but really just doing some internal sort of self, self-evaluation self of, of where you think you deserve to be in the compensation scale. That's well, it. what I like about that, too, is, you know, I'm sure of that they're about the research showing that women tend to not negotiate as hard for themselves when they get new jobs or when they're trying to negotiate raises. And you're talking about finding a way to value yourself that then you gives you a, the sense of entitlement. And I mean that in a positive way to like go in and ask for it and kind of make sure you get it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I had alternatives. Not everybody has that luxury. I didn't have any children, so I had some flexibility in terms of being able to take some risks. But at the end, and that's kind of how, how I resolved it. You know, I, I will tell you that in my current position, I had both men and women on my staff. Our rule is that if you want to ask for a raise or a bonus, the onus is on you. Over every single year, I've been doing this for almost five years now, the, the, some women ask, all the men do. Now, with young women, that's not the, the way we operate. And, and I don't know, maybe, and I don't have as many millennials working for me as, as perhaps you, you, you're, you're accustomed to dealing with, Emily. Are we getting better at this or not? That is, in being able to, as women, insist that we are valuable and, and, ask, and ask for things like raises and bonuses. I do notice a shift in how young women think about issues like sexual harassment and their sense of the way they should be treated in the workplace and actually pers- you know, in their personal lives. And I just don't think they put up with things that I put up with in the 90s. And I thought I was like a perfectly liberated person in the 90s. And I watched them and I feel a lot of respect and admiration for their unwillingness to tolerate like crappy behavior. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I wanted to ask Michelle is you are a woman like literally in a man's world. I mean, I know the NBA in the offices can be, um, 
you know, there can be women there. But like on the basketball court, that is not the case. And I am sure you are the first woman to have your job. Just seems like that must be true. (laughs) And I wonder what that was like for you coming in and how much you thought about, you know, your own gender identity in that context. You know, it's gotten better. But the legal profession, especially the, the areas that I practice in, are so male. I mean, there are not a whole lot of my words, girl trial lawyers. And so I I grew up, professionally at least, uh, working in environments where most of my my colleagues were men, uh, most of my um, competitors were men. And frankly, even when I was a public defender, most of my clients were men. So, I mean, it's it's kind of been where I've been for the last 40 years. One of the funny things that that happened as I was interviewing for my current job, because it was obvious to the players that I was a girl— there were players that asked me, well, you know, how are you going to be able to work in this in this space as the only woman? You might find yourself the only woman in a boardroom or in a conference room or at a meeting. Um, are you going to be able to handle that? And I just started laughing. I said, dude, you know, what do you think I've been doing for the last 40 years of my practice? <laughs> there are very few girls that I work with. And so for me, it was just a natural, a sad but natural extension of, of, the, of, of the professional life, life that I've lived. You know, the good news is, the good, the, and I say good with quotes, the good news is there's a lot of st- still ignorant thinking about the, the competence of women. And so uh, there are men that so stupidly allow themselves to be disadvantaged by believing that I'm disadvantaged. So that works for me. At some point, you just sort of, it's, it's sad, but you get used to being the only one, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I think I haven't been the only one very often in like a work setting, I would think that I'm sure I could also get used to it. Um, but I would think it would be hard to be the only woman in on a regular basis, um, kind of swimming in a sea of men for the reasons you said about people underestimating your intellectual ability, but also just like that, you know, it could get a little like foreign or I wasn't going to, I don't know if lonely is quite the right word, but they're just like, I don't know. There are just certain things you don't have in common with the people around you and in that environment. I, 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 you know, I, that's been the case since I left, left the projects, right? I mean, I'm, <laughs> right, I, that's, right, that, that's right. been my life. And, I, and I, it, I, I do say, sadly, I've gotten used to it. I mean, I've, I've found myself an hour into a meeting and realizing I'm the only woman in the meeting or the only person of color in the, in the meeting. I mean, that, you just, it just stops being something that, that I've become aware of. And I, and I kind of think it's good news because at least it means I'm so cons- consumed by what I'm doing that I'm not being distracted by what other people think is the oddity of me. Totally. And the fact that you brought up the projects makes me think about how you're dealing with this in terms of class as well as race and gender, right? Like there, and, and if you let any of those things stop you, you might become overwhelmed. Like you have to figure out how to transcend all that. You, you do because, and you do by understanding that it's not your problem. I mean, I, someone said a couple of days ago, I think I may have been watching TV, that if you think poorly of me because I'm black, that is your problem. It only becomes my problem if you have some ability to do something about it. One of the first clients I had was a young African-American um, who was charged with some, some crime. I'm in juvenile court, and there was a judge who I'd been warned about that was incredibly sexist, incredibly racist, and just a nasty old son of a bee who was behaving inconsistent with with everything I'd been told about him and was treating me horribly. And I was paralyzed by knowing that, not merely that I was being treated badly, but that this guy was doing that to me because I was 
I was black and because I was a woman. Um, and I, I didn't perform because I was so stunned by what was happening to me in a public courtroom. Um, and I kind of came to when I saw the marshal taking my client back into the, into the lockup. And I realized I hadn't performed, and I decided that I hadn't performed because of this judge, and I had allowed what this judge felt about me to impact my ability to, to represent this young kid. And I vowed I would never let that happen again. You made a point earlier about you perhaps want the world to be too fair. How do you put it? How do you take that and put it on the shelf so that you can perform? I mean, and how do you not have to do that in, in ways that I think I have to do that in order to, to get from step A to B? My answer to that is that I have channeled my deep sense of wanting more fairness and justice into the kinds of stories I write. So a lot of it has just been this sense that, you know, what I can do with all the luck, because I really do think of most of it as luck that I've been given, is like try to make, try to wake people up to the problems and injustices and lack of fairness I see around me. And so I, you know, I think in the end that like so many difficult um, qualities that an obsession with fairness can be a handicap, but it can also be a real strength because it can kind of propel you forward in our complicated times. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, I, just, I suspect that's the reason I probably, as much as I love my current job and, and frankly have loved my other jobs, the jobs I, the job I love the most was as a public defender because it, you know I, I used to say I was a civil rights lawyer when I was a public defender because I really believed that there's nothing that promotes civil rights more than making sure that, for example, people charged with crimes don't don't find themselves suffering because of their inability to pay. Compensation is how the workplace is supposed to tell us our value. But for women, that system is broken. So we have to find other ways to measure our self-worth. For Michelle Roberts, that meant coming up with a number that would make her feel good about herself. For many women, it means seeking out work that will fulfill us, since our paychecks might not. Like Sally Krawcheck said in an earlier episode, women report that the number one reason they accept a job is meaning and purpose. And many of the women in our series have talked about that. But finding meaning in your work is a privilege. And for many working women, we need to get paid, too. Thanks for listening to our conversation series. If you like our show or have anything to add to the conversation, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to rate, review, and subscribe. This show was edited by Francesca Levy, produced by Topher Forges, and hosted by me, Rebecca Greenfield. Janet Paskin moderated today's conversation. We also had production help from Jillian Goodman and Liz Smith. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcast.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.